Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll take a few moments to have silent prayer to make sure that uh, we're spiritually prepared uh, to study the word. And Bob, while we do that, Bob, would you... Get the doors, please. And um, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer while the door is being closed. And then we will be uh, spiritually, make sure you're spiritually prepared to study the word in fellowship. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time we have to study your word. We're thankful for the way in which you have revealed your word to us that the more we study, the more we learn, and each time we go over this material, each time new things uh, become apparent to us, we learn new things, things that we didn't see the first time, we see the second time or the third time, and uh, we're constantly amazed at the depth and the breadth of your word. Father, as we study this evening, we pray that we might be challenged by the things that we study. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and we are beginning in verse 7. Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7. Now, a couple of announcements I need to remind everybody about. First of all, we've got about 50 adults and about 12 or 14 kids going to the uh, picnic this Saturday. The time frame is between roughly between 12 noon and 4 p.m. We still need some people to sign up for a few things like cleaning up afterwards and that sort of thing on a Saturday, but I'm sure everybody's just going to pitch in. I heard mention of the fact, where'd Mark go? I guess he's, he's in the back. I heard mention of the fact that uh, there was the announcement that we were to bring our own beverages, and somehow that got Lost in translation. You got you got any guidance? Okay, bring whatever you like to drink, a little extra to share. Especially, I heard that. Bring extra. <laughs> Always have to bring you know an offering for the pastor. Okay, and uh, I think that ought to cover it for the picnic. Second, um, starting next Tuesday night, we're going to have a time change shift. Everything will move up a half an hour. Just, what is that, like a week or two before we fall forward with time change? So we'll all be confused. Uh, but we will be moving time the time frame up to uh, begin Bible class at 7.30 on both Tuesday night and Thursday night. And prayer meeting will begin at 7 o'clock, and we will begin providing prep school for kids on Tuesday night 
um, during the during Bible class. So that would be beginning on Tuesday, October the 12th. Okay, so everything moves up at that time. What? Tuesday and Thursday. No. Bible class is moving forward to 730. Forever. For all classes. Okay. Tuesday night at 730. Thursday night at 730. Prayer meeting at 7. Prep school on Tuesday night. So, yeah, we're just going to shift everything to 730. If it's 730 one night and 8 the other night, I won't get it straight, and I'll be I'll be confused most of the time, and so will everybody else. The email said that the email was wrong. The email was wrong or was interpreted wrong. No, all Bible classes are moving to seven thirty. That is the word ex cathedra. Okay, good. Good. So somehow something got lost in transmission, got garbled in transmission. All right. Any other questions? Anybody shows up at 8.30, you just turned your clock ahead too soon. Okay. All right. He- any questions? All right. Hebrews 13. We're moving toward a conclusion here, as I pointed out last time, in this final This is a final summary exhortation or challenge to the readers that are being addressed here. The normally we've seen the the uh, general outline of a uh, section of instruction, followed by a section of challenge or exhortation, and embedded within the challenge was a warning. Sometimes the warning, especially in the early early parts, the warning was pretty much the whole. Uh, exhortation. But now, as we come to the end, the final instructional section was the 11th chapter, followed by an exhortation that grew out of the 11th chapter, and that covered the 12th chapter. And then chapter 13 is the final concluding exhortation or challenge, or in modern uh, terminology, this is the application, as I pointed out last time, uh, contrary to the way Modern man wants to constantly um, have his food pre-masticated for him and put upon his uh, plate where he doesn't have to chew it or cook it or do anything. He constantly wants fast food mentality or he constantly has a fast food philosophy applied to spiritual life and spiritual things. doesn't want to think. We don't want to go home and put, take and go to the store and just buy all of the raw ingredients for, for food and then come home and prepare a meal that may take an hour or two hours. We would rather call and get it to go or go through the fast food line and not have to go through the process of thought and uh, spiritual preparation, which, and you just can't do that in the Christian life, in the spiritual life. It takes time, it takes thought, it takes uh, effort. And so uh, application, as we see in the scriptures, usually comes uh, in much smaller sections than what we have in, uh, in, in terms of the modern uh, mindset. Give five points of how to, uh, how to be successful in life or six points on how to be happy. Uh, the Bible just isn't structured that way. It is designed to teach us 
to think differently than the culture around us and not to have that kind of an approach to to life. And so often what we find is is lengthy sections that are explaining who we are as Christians, what we have in terms of our salvation in Jesus Christ, our new identity in Christ as as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that that means. And so you find in, for example, the first part of Colossians, the first part of Ephesians, you find this emphasis unpacking uh, everything that God did for us in salvation. The more we understand what God did for us in salvation, the more it should impact us in terms of gratitude, in terms of grace orientation, and in terms of a desire to live uh, live for God and to serve God. So here we come to the final chapter in um, <clears throat> in Hebrews, and we just get these uh, series of one-shot commands and prohibitions in the first eight or nine verses. But then starting in verse 9, there is an extended uh, application that uh, covers verses 9 down through uh, verse, actually down to verse 16, and it's all based on understanding what took place on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. So once again, the writer of Hebrews is taking us back into the Old Testament, looking at the picture that God provided for Israel in the Old Testament so that they would have a concrete example of what would transpire when God finally brought about atonement for the sins of, of the nation and for the sins of mankind. And so that is described in Leviticus 16, which we'll go back uh, to examine before we're done this evening. But as I pointed out last time, we had a series of of commands and prohibitions in the first six verses. And then there is a shift in verse 7 to talk about uh, the attitude and the response of the congregation to the spiritual leaders. And this um, actually frames the, this, this final section of, of um, instruction. In verse 17 we'll read, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So the 17th verse comes back to this theme of the the orientation of the congregation to the leadership of the local church. But verse 7 introduces this, so this whole section is framed by these two mandates related to leadership. And verse 7 states, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Now, the New King James translation here is a little difficult to understand, and it doesn't really reflect, or it's not the best way of reflecting uh, what the Greek text says. You actually have two commands, two imperative verbs in this verse. Remember is the first one, and uh, imitate, or, or in the, the verse here uses the word follow, is the second. And both of these are given as uh, present imperatives. Remember is the present active imperative of the Greek verb nemanuo, and imitate is the Greek verb memeomai. 
Both are present imperatives indicating that this should be normal, standard operating procedure that should characterize uh, everyday aspects of the believer's spiritual life. So initially, the believer is commanded to remember those who rule over you, although the verb here that is translated rule is the verb hegeomai, which is the same word that in other places is translated uh, to consider, to count, to think, to regard. But here in this context, it has the idea it's related to leadership. And it's not a word that indicates ruling as much as leadership. And so it should be translated to remember your leaders. Remember the leaders of you, literally, or remember your leaders. So it is to thinking about those who were not their current leaders in their local assembly, but those who initially taught them, those who initially perhaps brought them to an understanding of the gospel, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, of the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, and that he died on the cross as a substitute for their sins in fulfillment of all of the uh, Old Testament prophecies, promises, and pictures in the embedded in the sacrificial system. So he's at what the command is doing here is to say, look, you think back on those leaders who initially brought you from being an unbeliever to a believer. Now, if we're right, uh, there's no hard, hard evidence on who the recipients are. I've said a number of times that these were uh, uh, Jewish believers in Jesus as Messiah. Most likely they came out of a priestly or Levitical background, and the reason that is inferred is because there's so much in in Hebrews that assumes a complete and thorough knowledge of the Levitical system and the sacrificial system uh, in the Old Testament. And so from that it's inferred that for anyone to have that kind of knowledge of the sacrificial system, they would have had to have been a priest or a Levite functioning within the the, uh, various procedures of the Second Temple. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, now I want you to remember or to think about those who were your leaders who led you into uh, Christianity at the very beginning. Now, we're told in Acts chapter 4 that there was a huge number of priests just after the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, a very large number of priests became believers. So some of those could be these uh, individuals to whom this is being written. This is written about 62, 63 A.D., so this has only been 30 years. Some of you have been Christians for 30 years. I found it interesting this last week, the reason we did not have Bible class on Tuesday night was because uh, I was attending the Free Grace Alliance Conference in Dallas that uh, began on Monday and went through noon uh, yesterday. And they had uh, a number of different speakers. A couple of people asked me about the conference. I think that as far as I was concerned, the uh, speaker that I was most interested in hearing and that I think did uh, uh, the best job was uh, Joseph Dillow, or he goes by Jody Dillow. And uh, Dr. Dillow, I've known him or first met him, I think, back when I was a student at Dallas. He was in the doctoral program. He wrote the book Reign of the Servant Kings. Some of you have read that and are familiar with that book. 
And for those of you, I think uh, Judy's just waded her way through it. Well, Judy, I want you to know that as a reward for all of your work, the second edition, a completely revised edition that's twice as long, is due out within the next year. It's about 600 pages as it stands now, so I just thought I'd give her a little bit of a hard time. It's, uh, it's hard enough for many of us to work through the whole thing to begin with, but it is, uh, it's very well done, and it's the, in my opinion, although there's areas and passages I'm not in agreement with him on, but generally speaking, he does the best job of putting together a systematic theology of the free grace gospel, dealing with uh, the whole range of issues uh, that are come to, into play in understanding uh, the grace of God, the free grace offer of salvation, and that we do nothing to earn it or deserve it. And so he spoke uh, two times t- t- Tuesday morning and did an excellent job dealing with some uh, issues related to uh, the kingdom of God. Uh, that was very good. Then they also had a number of breakout sessions with panel discussions, which weren't, uh, in my opinion, quite as profitable as it is to hear someone who has really devoted themselves to an in-depth study and analysis of a topic or an issue and then uh, and then present that. So anyway, I was there for... Um, uh, for those uh, those two conference th- for that conference, and just uh, uh, thinking about a lot of these issues. I, I went down that rabbit trail, and now I don't remember uh, what the rabbit looked like that I was hunting. So um, that happens every every now and then. So uh, the point of this passage is to remember those who rule. Um, those who rule over you. And the word that's translated rule, it should really be translated as a leader, those who led you, uh, who have spoken, and it's, it's an aorist tense verb there, who spoke the word of God to you. So it's clearly speaking of events in the past, those who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, and then the next section is a little bit, um, convoluted here in the English, but the, the attempt in the New King James was to pull what's later in the verse in the Greek up to the front so that we are to are commanded to imitate the faith of those leaders. So they are, in some cases, gone by this time, and they're no longer they're no longer around. Some have died. Some have. Uh, moved to other areas, but they, they, these uh, believers here in Hebrews uh, 13 are to remember them and to imitate them. And then the uh, other word that is used there, the word uh, uh, considering, is actually a participle, and it emphasizes the idea of, of thinking, the idea of thinking and reflecting upon the outcome of their conduct. And that word that is translated uh, outcome should be understood to be the end result or the ultimate, the final achievement of of their life. So think about those leaders and how they gave their life to the service of the Lord and how they were involved in evangelism and teaching the word, the impact they had on you. Think about the end result of, of their whole life as a ministry and focus upon that. In other words, it's another reminder, don't give up the ship, don't, qu- 
quit now in the middle of your spiritual life or don't quit after 20 or 30 or 40 years of your spiritual life, but follow in the footsteps or imitate those uh, who went before you. Then in the next verse, we have a well-known verse that may be a verse that many of you have memorized simply because you heard it many times, and it's not a very difficult verse. It states, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The word is is placed in there to make it read more smoothly in the English, but it loses the impact. It is a, it, 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 by dropping the verb known as an ellipsis, it hits with a certain force. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, this verse is typically taken out of context and used to support the uh, immutability of Jesus Christ. The immutability meaning that he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that is certainly part of the meaning of this verse. But the writer of this verse is not jumping from a challenge to remember the rulers, the leaders, uh, remember your leaders and imitate them to suddenly change to a completely different topic and throw in a one-liner on the immutability of Christ. It doesn't fit the context. It's there. I'm not saying that this verse doesn't imply that. It does. But that's not what the, he's not writing a discourse here on the immutability of Christ. What the writer is saying is, Remember that Jesus Christ, who was sufficient for those leaders who taught you about Jesus as the Messiah, that Jesus who was sufficient for them in the trials and the persecutions that they went through in their spiritual life, is the same Jesus Christ today. He was sufficient for them. He is just as sufficient for you, and he will be just as sufficient in the future no matter what you may face in life, no matter what the temptations may be, no matter what the challenges may be. Jesus Christ is sufficient throughout for whatever the circumstances may be that you are uh, that you are facing. So he's not really talking directly to the doctrine of the immutability of Jesus Christ, but that is what's implied by the statement. But what he's really reminding the readers of is that, that just as the previous generation had gone through difficult times and had faced adversity and persecution, and they too were tempted to perhaps just... Um, give up their Christianity, they recognized that Jesus Christ was sufficient for them, and just as Jesus was sufficient for them, this writer is saying, he's the same today, and he will be the same to tomorrow, no matter what you face. We all face challenges. Think back uh, in your life, you have been exposed to a lot of different pastors and Christian leaders. You've been exposed to in two or three different churches at least. Some of you have been involved in other kinds of ministries. I've been involved in camping ministries. And when I go back 40 years, 50 years ago when I was a teenager and when I was in my 20s, and I think about some of the, um, the men who were influential in my life at that time, uh, many of whom have gone to be with the Lord for many, de- many decades, it's the same sufficient gospel, it's the same sufficient Lord, 
It's the same sufficient grace that they taught, that they experienced, that was real in their life that we have today. And you can think back to those who led before in a previous generation and remember their example, and that is a, an encouragement to us to stay the course. So verse 8 is emphasizing the sufficiency of Christ as much so, if not more, than his immutability. Now, what's interesting is this verse, just taking it out of context, has often been used and was used in the great debates over the nature of the deity of Jesus in the debates that occurred in the early 5th century A.D. Uh, If you recall uh, from our early 4th century, if you recall from church history, in 325, the um, uh, Council of Nicaea met, where the big debate was, is Jesus fully equal to the Father? And this was one of the verses that Athanasius uh, used. Athanasius was the bishop. Uh, Earlier he was the presbyter of Alexandria in Egypt, and he came to the council to contest the teaching of a man named Arius. Arius taught that Christ, that Jesus was um, finite. He had a beginning that only the Father was eternal, but that the Son had a beginning. And his little uh, mantra was that there was a time when Christ was not. And so uh, Athanasius challenged that, and it had become a very popular heresy uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, It's the same teaching that has resurrected itself today in the teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses, that Jesus is their, their Jesus is a... A Jesus who becomes God in time, not a Jesus that is eternally uh, God and eternally the same. And so this verse was used by uh, Athanasius, and then in the next generation, as the debates continued, and you had three theologians in the area of what we now refer to as Turkey, you had uh, Gregory of Nyssa, and you had Gregory uh, Nazianzus, and you also had uh, Basil, and these men were three men who clearly taught the uh, the deity of, uh, of Christ. But Gregory of Nazianzus argued that the yesterday and the forever, you know, the past and the future, refer to the deity of Christ, and the today referred to the humanity of Christ. Now, that's the kind of exegesis that reads a lot of stuff into a, a passage that really isn't there. It's trying to get this passage to say things it's not talking about at all. You can't derive something like that uh, from a verse of, of this nature. And we always have to remember the context. And when you take the, te- the uh, text out of the context, you're always left with a con job. And uh, so we have to be careful to always keep the the verse in context. And what the writer of Hebrews is talking about is encouraging these believers to uh, persevere, to stay the course. So those first two verses talk about remember, imitate, and think about or reflect upon or meditate on the outcome of those who had gone before and that Jesus Christ today is the same who sustained them and will sustain us in the future. Then verse 9 begins a slightly different section. 
Now, if you notice, there's not a new paragraph starting there uh, because each of these little sections just seem like another commandment. And so it's usually not broken down here. But as I've studied this, it seems to me like verses 9 through at least 15, probably 16, all fit together. And all of these have something to do with the Day of Atonement. And that's really the background for understanding uh, understanding these verses. Let me just read the first the first four verses here, and then we'll go to Leviticus 16. Verse 9, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. Well, we have to ask the question, what are these strange doctrines that seems to be enticing them away from the truth? For it is good, the four there tells you that this is an explanation. The, the prohibition was don't get carried about, don't get sucked into these strange doctrines. And he says, for it is good that the heart be established by grace. And so we have this term of heart, which reflects to the soul and the mentality of the soul, that the soul is established. That's something positive that strengthens the soul. The soul is established by grace. And the contrast is not with foods which have not profited those who've been occupied with them. So what establishes the heart is understanding something and receiving that understanding of grace. The reason I make that point is there have been many who have taken this as some sort of a verse to emphasize uh, fasting and some sort of ascetic response towards food. But that just misses the whole point. It's talking about just as the heart receives grace to be strengthened for the analogy to work, this is talking about receiving foods that would bring spiritual profit. So it's the idea of eating something that is thought to provide spiritual benefit. In other words, an emphasis on uh, certain foods that have been used in some sort of ritual preparation. Now, what would that be? Well, the context of Hebrews is clearly focused on Jewish ritual and understanding the shift from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant ritual, to the superiority of the New Covenant, what's provided in Christ. Well, as we'll see, there are some foods that were eaten exclusively by the priesthood, or in one case by the worshiper, and so it's apparently there, there has entered into uh, Judaism in this period of the first century some emphasis on the spiritual value of the food that was eaten or partaken of as part of the sacrifices. That's the idea there. Verse 10 goes on to say, but in contrast, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, when does the high priest bring the bodies or the blood from certain animals into the sanctuary? That's on the Day of Atonement. So verse 11 tells us that finally we get this clear indication we're talking about the Day of Atonement. And then it's applied to Jesus in verse 12, therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify or set apart the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. 
And then verse 13 begins with a therefore, so there we're going to get a conclusion and an application. So 9 through 12, those four verses, are really, really have a background in the Old Testament. So what I want you to do now is let's turn to Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1. And we're just going to do a little review. It's been probably a year or two since we went through that lengthy study uh, we were engaged in in the middle of uh, Hebrews, in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 6 or 7 and 8, dealing with all of the different sacrifices and all the different offerings. Now in Leviticus chapter 1, we have the burnt offering. Different animals could be brought for burnt offering depending on the economic situation, the prosperity of the one who was uh, bringing the offering. But in the burnt offering, everything was to be consumed by fire and everything was to be offered up for God. And so there's no eating of the uh, animals that are offered in the in the sacrifice. In chapter 2, we have the grain offering. And this was a meal that was prepared and and was eaten. Uh, some of it was offered up to God and some was eaten by the worshiper. So it's a picture of fellowship. And in verse, verses 4 and in verse 10, we're told that Aaron and his sons would eat what remained of the grain offering. So the grain offering provided a food for the priests. Then we have the peace offering in chapter 3, the sin offering, the guilt offering in chapters 4 and 5. And then uh, in chapter 7, there is uh, further, uh, further development of the law of the peace offerings. And there is the mention that um, as part of the peace offerings, that this could also be eaten uh, with by the priests. So more uh, food is available uh, for, for the priests, and some of the um, uh, parts of the animal were also eaten by the priests. So this would indicate a, a food that had been ritually prepared, ritually offered, and was to eaten in by, by, eaten by the priests. So that's the only thing that would make sense in light of what the writer is saying in verse 9, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for, that's the explanation, it's good that the heart be established by grace. What is it that confirms or strengthens the heart? That's the idea of the word there. It is grace. We grow by means of grace, but grow by the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says in Second Peter uh, 3.18. We grow by the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace is a means of, of growth. It's not a power. It is understanding the grace of God. The more we understand the grace of God and all that he freely provided for us, the stronger we become as a, as a Christian, the more we understand all that he has given us. That's clear in uh, Romans chapter 6. Three of the great chapters on sanctification, I did a study of this about oh, 10 or 12 years ago that's out on the website. It was a good survey series of about 15 or 20 lessons on Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those are the key chapters on the spiritual life and sanctification. By the way, the Chafer Conference is scheduled for March 
I believe the dates are March, um, it's either the 6th through the 8th or the 7th through the 9th. I never can remember. Um, but the focus this year is on sanctification, on the spiritual life. We'll have brochures available within the next week, I think. Am I right? Okay. Uh, we'll have brochures available for the next week, but the topic is on sanctification. And the issue is how does a believer grow to maturity? What's interesting is in the course of, of uh, church history, there have been uh, probably eight or nine different key models or patterns that have been uh, discerned for uh, how a Christian grows. You have the Roman Catholic model of, of the spiritual life. You have the uh, Reformed or the Presbyterian Calvinistic model of the spiritual life. You have the Wesleyan or Methodist model of the spiritual life, the Holiness model, the Keswick model, the Pentecostal model, the Chaferian model, uh, named after Louis Berry Chafer. And there's about 90% agreement in all of these models. It's the 10% difference, and in some cases only 2% difference, that is where the real issues are. But it's just like a, a, a gallon of water is really good for you, and a gallon of water with a couple of drops of cyanide in it isn't a whole lot different, but it's not good for you. And that it's important to, to focus on those and this is why people think, oh, theology, you're just, you're just picking at little things. They may be little things to some people, but they're very important. And so you have to, we have to understand these differences and these distinctions. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on. It's going to be a great conference. We're going to look at the whole topic, uh, biblically, theologically, histor- in terms of historical theology, and a- basically answering a couple of different questions. What does the Bible teach? in terms of the pattern and the path for the spiritual life. What is it? What isn't it? What's part of it? What's not part of it? What are some of the uh, problems, some of the ics, and spasms that are out there that distract people, such as mysticism, and uh, uh, things that need to be part of the pattern and things that are not necessarily integral to the pattern. And so that's going to be the focus of this year's uh, uh, conference. It's going to be... I think it's going to be really, really good. I mean, all the guys are working really hard on their papers, and um, I'll be speaking in the evening on abiding in Christ out of John 15, work that I did several years ago, but updating it quite a bit. And then uh, Charlie Clough will be talking about sanctification in the Old Testament. Mark Perkins will be talking about mysticism and the spiritual life. Um, have several men who are going to be focusing on key uh, passages in Scripture, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, 1 John. David Dunn's going to do a great paper on um, on the purpose of 1 John and understanding 1 John as it talking about fellowship or, or uh, salvation. And so this is going to be a uh, very good conference. I'm really pushing these guys to write really good papers, and when they get done, they're going to rewrite them and make them even better because I have the idea that we ought to publish this as a book, sort of a feshrift, that's a fancy term of a type of book that's usually published in honor of a theologian after 50 years of his of his service, but it seems so far away. 
2018, in eight years, will be the 100th anniversary of the publication of Lewis Berry Chafer's He That Is Spiritual. And I would love for us to be able to put together, and I have two or three other men uh, who are going to be working on other papers as well, but they can't come this year because their wives are having babies. I mean, what kind of spiritual commitment is that? Your wife's due date is the 6th of March, so you're not going to come and give a paper on you. Some people just don't understand commitment. So uh, there are some other papers that are going to be done that aren't going to be included because these guys can't come at the conference. So uh, who would have thought two guys would work out such creative excuses? But anyhow, that's, that's sort of my ambition is that we'll be able to put together a really good uh, publication that we can then uh, take to a couple of publishers and see if we can bring out a volume on uh, the spiritual life in the tradition of Lewis Berry Chafer's He That Is Spiritual that will, uh, that will honor him. So that's, that's the idea. So that's going to be a good conference. So the issue in all of this is how is a person really sanctified? And that's what, where the writer of Hebrews is going in this little section. So he goes back here and he looks at these, um, um, uh, this reference to these, this heretical doctrine here that there are those who are saying instead of that they're being established by grace, that the spiritual life is on the basis of grace, but on the basis of foods, that somehow if you eat certain foods, specifically those that are part of the Levitical sacrificial system, that this it will move you into a higher spiritual life. See, they had that in the Old Testament just as much as we do today. You always have people who say, I've got the key to the victorious Christian life or the higher spiritual life or whatever it is that came out of the holiness and Keswick movements in the 19th century. But there's there's no such special thing that if you just get the right formula that somehow that's going to elevate you above the struggle of spiritual warfare and the struggle with sin. That just isn't going to happen. So the warning here in verse 9 is not to be... Uh, distracted by these false claims of spirituality, basically. In this instance, it was food, but we've seen so many different kinds of aberrations down through the centuries, whether it's asceticism. Today we have a resurrection of medieval asceticism and contemplative spirituality. There are you go to a Protestant bookstore and you will find as many books on medieval, by medieval mystics, St. John of Damascus, Teresa of Avila, uh, Thomas of Kempis, than you find in a Roman Catholic bookstore. And, and this has permeated late 20th century, early 21st century evangelicalism. And it, we have to be warned against that. But there's always somebody who's not satisfied with their spiritual life, and they get a secret. And they say, I have a secret. I figured out the secret. I figured out the magic formula. And so they've got the new clue to the spiritual life. So in the first century, apparently, there were those who were focusing on uh, on food. In contrast to that, the writer of Hebrews says in verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. And so the word altar here is used in a different sense. The altar is where the sacrifice took place. The altar for the Christian 
is the cross of Christ. That's where the sacrifice took place. So he's using the word altar here in a metaphorical way. Now that takes us back to the Gospel of John uh, in the Bread of Life discourse when Jesus says that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will be saved. He's using the term eating and drinking there as a metaphor for accepting him or believing in him. And so the eating and the drinking of Christ isn't literal, which is what you have in the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine literally change into the literal body and literal blood of Christ. It's interesting, I read a survey the other day that 40% of Roman Catholics didn't know that that's what the Roman Catholic Church taught about the Mass. 40% did not understand that what was going up there when the... um, when the priest said hocus pocus over the elements, now you think I'm making fun of them. When the priest says, hocus meus corpus, this is my body. In medieval England, nobody knew Latin. They thought he was saying hocus pocus. That's where you get the word hocus pocus. Hocus meus corpus. See, hocus pocus. And when the priest says, this is my body, this is my blood, they would, they, it, in Roman Catholic theology, it literally changes into the body and the blood of Christ. So they feed on that spiritual food. They've misunderstood the metaphor. The metaphor for eating and drinking is that anybody can do it, and to eat something or to drink something, we accept it into ourselves. It's just a picture of acceptance or belief. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we as Christians have an altar from which those who serve in the literal tabernacle, the literal temple, have no right to eat because they don't understand that everything that's happening ritually in the temple or tabernacle service is a picture, a depiction of what what would happen when God finally uh, resolved the sin problem. It pointed forward to what would happen with Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, they don't have a right to eat at the table we do. We're eating spiritual food, which is Jesus Christ, by faith and trust in him. And so they don't have a right to that table because they've never accepted Christ as their Savior. And then in verse 11, he says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, he's going to make an issue out of this this fact that those bodies are burned outside the camp. To understand that, we have to understand what went on in the instructions in Leviticus 16 for Yom Kippur. So turn over now to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 gives all of the descriptions, and we've gone through this in detail, of what the high priest was to do on the Day of Atonement. The first thing that would have to happen is that the high priest, as a sinner, would have to be cleansed of sin. He and his family have to be cleansed of sin first. So initially, in verse 3, Aaron was to come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and blood of a ram as a burnt offering. So there's a sin offering and a burnt offering from a young bull and a ram, and this is related to his personal cleansing his ritual cleansing and the cleansing of his family. 
He is to dress a certain way. Verse 4, he shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban. He shall be attired. Now, this was all white. Now, what's interesting is today, if you go to a Jewish synagogue on uh, Yom Kippur, the rabbis will be dressed in a white in white linen robes, and that is uh, derives from this passage. The white linen robes depicts something that is done. Of, uh, the the linen comes from the uh, from the flax plant. It's it grows apart from human. It's not a basis of a human work, and it is. I mean, it's, it's not a uh, you know like a man-made fiber or something of that nature. And the whiteness reflects purity. And so this pic is a physical, literal, visual picture of his uh, sanctification. He washes his body in the water, and then he puts on these new clothes. And then he uh, performs these sacrifices for himself and for his family. In verse 6 we read, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. Now, atonement has the idea of cleansing or purification for sin. We've, I've talked about this before, that the Hebrew word for atonement is kafar. And uh, that had a nice little sound memory device. Kafar means to cover. And there is one Hebrew word, kafar, that is the word that's used for when Noah covered the ark with pitch. And for many, many, many years, uh, it has been thought that kafar means to cover. But recent scholarship suggests that there are these two homonyms, uh, two, two words that are spelled the same, sound the same, but they, ha- they have a different etymology or background. And kafar, that one, means to cover. That's like covering something with pitch. But kafar, two, it has the idea of, of um, cleansing from sin or sanctification or purification. And so that, and and what's interesting is when the rabbis who translated the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, when they translated this in the second century or so BC, many times the word that is translated, uh, the word they use to translate kafar is katharizo, the Greek word for cleansing. They also translate it with the, um, or the Greek word hilasterion, which means propitiation. So what we really have in the word kafar is a multifaceted term that can summarize all of the different aspects of what takes place to resolve the sin problem. And so in some places it's cleansing, some places propitiation. It's both manward and godward. So the English word atonement was coined, it's literally at one meant to summarize this this word. So atone, there's really no such word like atonement uh, in in the Hebrew or in the Greek. So the offering is designed to create cleansing, purification uh, from sin. Now the next thing that Aaron brings, he has two goats, and one goat is destined to be killed, and one do- goat is destined to be let loose in the wilderness. And they cast lots to determine which will be which, and the the one that is uh, one that is destined for a sacrifice will be taken as a sin offering, and the goat that is the scapegoat 
uh, is taken and will be released in the wilderness. The scapegoat, the high priest, sits down and puts his hand on the head of both goats. This indicates an identification of the priest with the goat and identification and substitution and the the, the sin of the nation by virtue of the representation of the high priest is imputed to the goat, the goats. The one goat is taken and killed because a death is required to pay the penalty for sin. The other goat, who has also received the imputation of sin, it depicts something different. He is taken out so far out into the wilderness that he can't find his way back and he is released to depict the fact that the sin problem is dealt with so completely that these sins are not going to be brought up again. They are completely dealt with. So that's the picture that's that's there with the two goats. Then with the uh, the uh, the sin offering is taken, and the high priest will take the goat of the sin offering and takes its blood inside the veil. Inside the veil. Now, when we discussed this in Hebrews, I pointed out that there's some debate over whether the altar of incense is outside the veil or inside the veil. Back that up. Inside the veil. And I took the position based on a number of uh, translations that's probably just inside the veil, uh, not outside the veil. And the high priest could light the incense and burn it from outside the veil without necessarily going inside. Uh, This was in the Holy of Holies. And you have the um, altar of incense here and then the Ark of the Covenant uh, here, which is the main piece of furniture inside the uh, Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant looked like this with the uh, box, which is uh, made of acacia wood covered with gold. The lid was pure gold. This was called, in the Greek, it was hilasterion, which is also translated propitiation or the place of propitiation or the mercy seat. And inside the box were the symbols of Israel's sin, the broken Ten Commandments, Aaron's rod that budded, and the manna. And then the high priest would splatter blood on the mercy seat. He doesn't just place it there. It would be splattered there. So it was a pretty bloody-looking mess after a while. And the picture is the cherubs looking down upon the mercy seat where the blood is, uh, represent the, that God's holiness and righteousness are satisfied by the, by the shedding of blood or by the death. Shedding of blood being a metaphor, uh, for death. Now when that was over with, the bodies of the animals that were used in the sacrifice that weren't, that was not burned up in a, um, burnt offering, the bodies were then taken outside of the camp an unsanctified area, and uh, then they uh, they were uh, burned up. And we see this down in verse... ...27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to, the, to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. 
And they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Then he who burns them shall wash his clothes, because he's been out now in unsanctified uh, ground. He has to wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may return uh, back into the camp. So outside the camp is a place of where it is unsanctified. Now when we read the verse in Hebrews 13.11, you can turn back to Hebrews now, we read, for the bodies of those animals, that's the bull and the goat that are used on the Day of Atonement, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, that is, as a substitute or for atonement for sin, are burned outside the camp. And outside the camp is now going to be um, picked up as an important illustration. Therefore, Jesus also, verse 12 says, that he might sanctify the people. There's that word which means to be set apart to God, and here it's talking about positional sanctification, not experiential sanctification. Positional sanctification is what happens when our sins are paid for, and that is first applied to the individual believer. He is positionally set apart by virtue of his uh, identification with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, which brings in the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, here is a map of Jerusalem as it existed in the early part of the first century A.D. The black dotted line here represents the gate, the, the wall of Jerusalem at the time of Christ. And it comes down here from the north to the south and then makes a right angle turn going this way and around the palace of, um, uh, of Herod, which is where the Citadel of David, uh, what they call the Citadel of David at the Jaffa Gate now stands. And then it comes and heads south and around the southern part of the city and around the uh, end, the southern end of the old city of David, and then back north to the Temple Mount. Now, Golgotha, the traditional location where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, is located right here. This is indicated here as the traditional location. Now, for years, nobody knew about this wall. The wall that we knew about was this wall that was begun uh, by Herod and was com- was completed in A.D. 40 was the wall that we knew about. And the problem there was that Golgotha then would be inside the gate. But Hebrew says that he was taken, uh, he suffered outside the gate. But it, this, but this, nevertheless, this was the traditional site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where most people believe Jesus was, was uh, crucified. And this part, portion of the wall here is about uh, maybe 75 yards to the east of the traditional site of Golgotha, which actually is more a little bit further south than where that black square is more like in this area. They were excavating in the, basic, in the basement of a Russian Orthodox church, and they discovered a huge gate and, and part of the wall that existed there, and it's a large gate, and then just to the right of it, there's a very small, uh, very much smaller gate, which is referred to as the Eye of the Needle, so that 
after dark when they'd close the big gate. If you were just an individual, instead of opening the big gate, you'd just come in through the eye, uh, the eye of the needle uh, gate. That has nothing to do with that verse in the scripture that says it's uh, easier for um, a, a, rich, a rich man to get into heaven than somebody to go through the eye of the needle. Uh, to a different needle word, different word for needle. But what that did was it confirmed the fact that the traditional location of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher was outside of the wall and that indeed in up until 40 A.D., this was the uh, e, uh, the western wall of the city that ran just to the east of the site of Golgotha, which means Jesus was crucified outside of the camp, as the writer of Hebrews indicates here in Hebrews 13:11. So he is outside the camp in unsanctified territory that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, that is, by means of his death. That concept of with his blood always indicates death. Therefore, in verse 13, he draws a, an application, let us go forth to him outside the camp, not inside, which is dominated by the Judaism of the Pharisees, which is what these Jewish background believers, former priests wanted to do, but he's saying go outside the camp bearing his reproach, being identified with Jesus and therefore becoming a reproach to the Jews who had rejected him and those who were inside uh, the city. And then he makes an interesting application in verse 14, for here we have no continuing city. As Christians, we don't focus on the city of Jerusalem. Our focus is on the new Jerusalem that is in the, in the, in the future. This is the city that is built without hands that Abraham looked forward to. This is the new Jerusalem that is related to the heavenly Mount Zion, not the earthly Mount Sinai, which was the focal point of the, uh, of the illustration in, at the end of Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 12. So we'll stop here at verse 14. Next time we'll come back and pick up verse 15 and work our way towards the end of Hebrews. Now what I want to do when I finish this, this up is we will complete our study of Hebrews probably, uh, next time or come very close to it, uh, going from Hebrews, uh, 13:15 down to, uh, verse 25. We'll probably complete that next time. That will be the next to last lesson, and then the last lesson will be a final review flyover summarizing what we've gone over in Hebrews, covering it again in one lesson. And so that covers the next two Thursday nights. Remember next Thursday night, 730. And then the next Thursday night we'll finish up, and then the next Thursday night we'll start Romans, God willing. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to uh, once again see the importance of uh, understanding the Old Testament in order to understand the New Testament and the importance of recognizing that Old Testament sacrifice is pointed to Christ and that it is in Christ that we have a, a complete and total salvation, that he provided everything for us on the cross, and so it is there that we focus 
because our sins are paid for and we have new life in him. I pray that you challenge us with these uh, mandates in Hebrews 13 that we've studied, that these are to characterize our life as church-age believers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.